So like I said, we're going to be uh, picking up where we left off last week uh, in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to in verse 19 and 20 is where we're going to be looking at, especially verse 19. And then we're going to hopefully get into chapter 4, the end of the chapter. And if the Lord permits and we get there, all the way to verse 6 of chapter 5. That's the goal. That, that's the plan for where we're going to go tonight. So let me read to you again, Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. Paul says, My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and exchange my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Now, as we talked about last time we were together, uh, Paul had an attitude toward these Christians, toward this church of a father. And in times past, you've heard me teach on the importance of eldership and how the Bible has taught it all along. And unfortunately, in our churches nowadays, in many of our churches, we've gone to congregational government where everybody in the body has an equal vote and the church determines what we do. And that was never really God's design because there are those that God has not only gifted and called and equipped to be leaders in the church. There are those who are more mature, who have been down the road a little bit longer. And, and that's part of what that term elder actually means. It doesn't really mean that a young person isn't qualified, but it's a rare case. The term elder has in it a picture of an older man. And, and God had designed that. And just like you've heard me talk about before, just like in our human families, God has designed parents and they have the responsibility of leading and directing and guiding. And ultimately, they're responsible for the direction of the family. There's a good it's a good, healthy interaction with the family where the kids have input and they have a say in some things in the sense of they get to share their opinions or what they'd like. But ultimately, whose responsibility is it to make the final decision in a godly and healthy home? The parents. In the same way, God has designed the same thing for our churches. Now, we're not going to go into a teaching on elders, but I want you to see that this attitude is carried over in how Paul feels toward the people of the church here in Galatia. And he, he says, my little children, for whom I'm in again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There is a lot right in that one verse. And so what I want us to do is put a bookmark here in Galatians and go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 9 through 12. I'm going to show you a few places where Paul talks with this same type of an attitude where he looks as him, at himself as a parent and the believers as his children. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to verses 9 through 12. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct, conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you see it? He said, we, we, we acted towards you as a father toward his children. Go back to the beginning of this uh, chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, and look even more closely at the intimate relationship he saw and the attitude he had toward them. He said, for you yourselves, chapter 2, verse 1, know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in, at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, folks, what I'm, I'm going to show you one other passage that goes along with this. But what I want you to see is this. The attitude of Paul and the apostles and the pastors, if you will, toward the church, toward the congregations, they saw themselves as parents and the, the, the congregations as their children, and they had a love for them. Unfortunately, and what I deal with is I travel around and deal with churches, and, and I spend a lot of time mentoring pastors. One of the things I've started to realize over the years is there's been a misunderstanding among the clergy, if you will, as to God's design for their role. They see themselves more as leaders. They talk more about, they won't follow my authority. 
but they don't see themselves as parents. As a parent, when it comes to your children, what is your responsibility? Are you not to raise them up and turn them into godly, mature young men and women on their own? I mean, that is your purpose. It's not your purpose that they would always be under your hand and always under your authority. Your purpose is to mature them, to help them, to equip them. Yeah, when they're young, you have a lot more responsibility and a lot more rules, if you will. But as we've talked about, as they get older, you're shaping and you're molding. And your desire is not that they would always follow you. Your desire is that they would become men and women on their own, godly men and women who would in, in time produce children of their own and watch over them and mature them. But a lot of pastors today see people in the church as volunteers to work for their ministry. And so as I deal with pastors or I deal with youth pastors or I deal with children's ministers, I have to meet with them and I, and I sit down with them and I explain to them scripturally, look, when you say you're the children's minister at this large church, all the people that are working in the children's ministry are not there to work and support your ministry. Your job is to equip them to do their ministry. You give them direction, you give them input, but for the most part, let them make mistakes. Let them be creative. Let them serve in the ways in which they're gifted. You come alongside of them and help them. You know, when your kids were little, you put the training wheels on them, but in time you took them off and you let them fall. You let them get scraped up. It's in the mistakes that we make some of our best learning opportunities, right? But unfortunately, in a lot of churches today, the pastors are so afraid of something messing up because it'll look bad on them that they micromanage. And they always, many pastors don't even let anybody else do anything because they think they'll do it the best. And folks, I'm talking from experience. I unfortunately had that attitude as well. And thank God, years ago, a couple of men came to me when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic. And they, they, sat, they, they, they said, we would like to have a lunch with you. And they, this is back when the Bennigans was still open over there off of Apollo. They said, we'd like to meet you for lunch at Bennigans. And so they said, just meet us at some, such a time. And so I show up and I could tell when I showed up that this wasn't going to be a friendly, let's laugh and have lunch. I could just tell by their faces. And when I sat down to that day, they both looked at me and they said this. They said, this is not a threat. But if you don't let us use our gifts, there's really no need for us to be here in this church anymore. And we're going to have to go somewhere else because you keep putting your hands in everything. It's how I've been raised. It's how I've been mentored in the ministry that I was supposed to have my hand in everything. Actually, a lot of people expected me to have my hand in everything. But they said to, the, said to me, they said, Jim, we're gifted in some of these areas that you're not. And if you would let us do them, we would be able to do them. And you didn't have to. And believe me, inside I was thinking, I'd love not to have to have my hand in all this stuff. And trust me, of all the people in the church, these are two of the last people I wanted to leave. I had a list of folks I'd love to have left. <laughs> these two men weren't on it. And so that day, thank God for them, they lovingly came alongside of me and said, you need to let some of this go and let us handle it. Now, whenever I would fall back into that old mentality, They'd come up to me and they'd say, do we need to go to Bennigan's? And I'd say, no, 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 no. And I thank God for them. Because if you look at scripture, the Bible even teaches Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came and said, what are you doing? You're handling everything. This isn't good. You handle the big stuff. You let other people handle the other stuff. David had his mighty men. And one of the saddest things is in our churches, because we have it, and it's our, us pastors' fault because we have not equipped the children, because we have not let them make mistakes, because we haven't given them opportunity to experiment in ministry and to serve and to use their gifts, and because we've always made sure everything was working out just right or if it looked like it was gonna work, we quickly fixed it. Because we did this, we haven't equipped the body to do the work of the ministry. And unfortunately, many of you grew up under the years of thinking, well, any work of the ministry, that's the pastor's job anyway. But Paul, he's, he has a heart as a parent. He's perplexed, but he's not going to come in and clean house. He just teaches and says, let's learn from here. Let me give you another example. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. My prayer is that wherever you are, in whatever church you're plugged into, that the pastors there will equip you, yet let you serve. I found over the years when I let other people do stuff, even though subconsciously I thought I might do it better, I was wrong. They had way better ideas. They did things far more creative and, well, they were gifted in those areas. I wasn't. And it took me a long time to learn that, you know what? God can use someone besides Jim Johnson. 
Not be, hey, <laughs> but you're right. You're right. But it took me a while to learn it. It really took me a while to learn it. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to fall into that mindset when everybody keeps saying, well, you've been to seminary, you do it better. I had a lady come to me uh, this past Sunday after I finished preaching at this one church I was at. And she's talked about, she brought me her daughter and how her daughter's dating this guy and her daughter really needs to know the Lord. So would you come and talk to him and tell him about Jesus? And I said, no. And her eyes got huge. And I said, why don't you tell him? He's in your house. Oh, I couldn't do it as good as you. I see, see that, that, that's because you think the power is in how someone says it. It's the Spirit of God that opens somebody's eyes to whether or not they need Jesus. So the cool thing was, her reaction was, after the, the, the service, this was the morning, I preached two services at this church. Between the two services, she came up afterwards and she said, can you sit down with me? I, I think I'm going to say it this way. Is this going to be okay? And I sat there and said, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds good. And I can't wait until Sunday when she's going to hopefully bring him with her and tell me how it went. Because I want to teach her how to talk to people about Jesus. Listen to what Paul says here about 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. Do you see what he's saying? He goes, you got a lot of people that instruct you and come alongside you and teach you and all. But I was... The one God used to have you come to know him, kind of like your spiritual father. And that's how he saw himself. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like what we read here in Galatians chapter four, verse 19, where he says he feels like he's in the pains of childbirth again. I mean, I thought that I was there when you guys were born again. I thought I was there being used of God when you came to faith in Christ. Was that false labor? I mean, you're starting to fall prey to this bad teaching that you got to add to what Jesus did. I feel like I'm going through childbirth again. I tell you a cool story. When I was, years ago in Chicago, I had a man in the church. His name was Gene, and he was a deacon. He had been a deacon in the church. He was in his 60s, and he had been a deacon for many years. And uh, he was in my Sunday school class, and uh, he started to get under conviction. He lived in a trailer park, and he felt like he was supposed to talk to his neighbor about Jesus. So he, he, he comes in to me, and he says, uh, Pastor, I really feel like I'm supposed to tell my neighbor about Jesus. What do I do? I said, go and ask them that after they die, where are they going? He goes, oh, that's good. He writes it down even. That's good. <laughs> so the next Sunday, he comes and I said, Gene, how'd it go? He goes, oh, it didn't go good. I go, what happened? He goes, well, I asked the question you told me to ask, but when they answered, I didn't know what to answer. <laughs> I go, well, you, what, what did you ask him? And he goes, I asked him if they, where they die. If they die, they know where they're going. And I said, well, what'd they say? And he goes, my neighbor said, yeah, I know where I'm going. I've already got the plot. It's right next to my wife. He goes, I didn't know what to say next. So I left. I said, Gene, go back. Ask him this question. Where are you going after that? Gene, Gene goes, oh, that's good. That's good. We write that down. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Because you know what? You're teaching. You're getting a chance. Folks, listen to me. Many of you have had this false mindset that you can't do these things of the ministry. You can't tell someone about Jesus. You can't lead them to faith. You might mess it up. You can't mess it up. Because it's the spirit of God's work. And he uses more than just you. You're not the only person he's using. I love you, but get over yourselves. God's bigger than that. And I'm learning, I'm only in my late 40s, but I'm finally starting to get a little bit of this understanding of what Paul was talking about. Instead of me having to put on the airs of being the leader and I'm in charge and everybody looks up to me with all this response. But you know what? I'm starting to see people as children. And I want to help you grow in your knowledge and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of the best ways for that to happen is not to have me do it for you but to help you go do it. And let me just tell you, once you start getting it, get out of the way. Because it's fun to watch God get a hold of what we call the lay people and use them for his ministry, which has been his design all along. By the way, um, Jesus, he was the one who was equipped, right? 
He was the one who had the pedigree and the, the training. I mean, he, he was of God. He was not only of God, he was God. And, and uh, I mean, he was able to teach the, the, the teachers in the, in the temple when he was 13. And yet, who did he pick to be his apostles? By the way, that means sent ones. He picked fishermen and tax collectors. And by the way, when he sent them out two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom, they didn't even know what the kingdom was. They didn't. They didn't. Well, they didn't have enough training. No, the training happens as you go. You see, I'm not saying we shouldn't do what we're doing here. I think this is a value. But if this is the only kind of training you get, you're not going to get much out of it. Because Jesus didn't say, everybody sit around, it's time for the lesson. No, but there were times that he would teach them as they sat. He would, the Mount of Olives in the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down to teach and it turned into a big sermon for a lot of people, but it started with his disciples as he began to teach them. But on most of his teaching, you'll see is as he's on his way, a situation would arise and he'd say, hey, let's talk about this. And he used that as a teaching opportunity. Most likely John chapter 15, where he says, I'm the, my father, uh, I'm the vine and you're the branches. My father's the gardener. Most likely happened in the garden or at least on the way to the garden between them being in the upper room and him going to the cross. And most likely there were grapevines in the area. And he used that as a teaching opportunity to teach them about abiding. Folks, please, please, please. Break free from this mindset that thinks the minister can do it better than you. The minister is you. You're the ministers of the kingdom. You're the ones. And we're to equip. We're the equippers of the ministers. And so when your pastor thinks he's the only one that can do it, don't get mad at him. He's learning just like I had to. But at the same time, don't wait on him to do the work of the ministry. God put something on your heart, go give it a shot. Go give, how are you going to know whether or not you've got that spiritual gift? Please don't hear me wrong, but please don't decide what your spiritual gift is because you took a test. We got spiritual gift tests out there where you can take a test and find out what your spiritual gift is. Don't get me started on that one. You know what? Just go out there and get plugged in. Try something. Try something. And you'll find out whether or not you're called or whether you're gifted. And if you find out that ain't it, try something else. Get involved in ministry and watch what God does. <laughs> Folks, I didn't become a preacher because I took a spiritual gift test. I went to Sunday school. I went to Bible study. And it became quite obvious that I took over the class that maybe that might be what God wanted me to do. But you know what? It wasn't because I took a class. But it was also because a wonderful man named Wayne Harvey years ago saw something and he let me practice my preaching. And let me just tell you, um, this is how I used to preach. I'm nowhere near as bad as I was, but this is how I used to preach. I'd be talking and I'd be walking just like this. I'm not kidding you. When I first started preaching, I paced like a caged tiger. And that was as fast as I walked. Now I just do it a little bit slower because my knees aren't as good. But... <laughs> I had a, a wonderful older lady come to me one Sunday and she says, Jim, I love to listen to you, but I have to close my eyes. She goes, I wish I could nail one foot to the floor and let you just go in a circle. But you know what? Over time, I got to fan into flame the gift that God had given me. But for too long, we have crippled the church by thinking the pastors and the only ones can do it. Look here at Paul's attitude. He sees them as children and with your children if you do it all for them they'll never know how to drive they'll never know how to make their bed they'll never you know what they might not do it as good as you yet but how are they ever going to learn but look at what he also says here he says that he's in the pains of childbirth but then he says until christ is formed in you how about that for an interesting flip because in childbirth the baby's formed in the mom in the parent. But here he says, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. By the way, I can tell you right now, we're not getting to the end of chapter, <laughs> verse 6 on chapter 5, but that's okay. I would rather go where God wants to go than finish my notes. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What has God predestined for you as his child? That you would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Listen closely. That is what he's planned ahead of time for you. Not just that he would save you, but that he would begin salvation. We're going to get to that a little bit later here. That he would begin the salvation process and he would conform you into his image. So you are in the process right now of being shaped. You're in the process of being conformed. It gets even more clear in 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter chapter uh, 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. First Peter chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you see it? You start off as a baby. You start off as a baby. But in time, you're going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Well, it's Christ who's actually growing in you. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses, uh, let's just look at verse 18. 2 Peter 3 verse 18. Peter says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You're in a process. I have a man that uh, whenever I speak at this one place, he always comes up after me afterwards and he says this to me. You're getting closer to the truth. Now, I got to be honest with you. The first time he said it to me, I was a little offended because I know this man and he has the tendency to come across like he's got God figured out and everybody else doesn't. I mean, he's got his theology and he's got how he thinks it ought to be. And so that first time that he walked up to me and said, you're getting closer to the truth, I thought he was saying, you're almost where I am. But he kept saying it. Every time I'd speak at a regular time at this place, and he kept saying it. And finally I said, okay, what do you mean by that? And this is what he said. He said, we're all in the process of getting to know Jesus more and more and more. And he is the truth. And he said, every time I hear you speak, I can tell that you've been with Jesus and you're getting closer to the truth. Amen. I like that man now. <laughs> I like him now. <laughs> now that he matches up with my theology, he's okay. But do you understand what I'm saying? We're in a process of growing. Oh, by the way, when you were raising your children, some of you in here have already done this. Did they make mistakes? Yeah. Of course they did. How about you? Let's not talk back about your kids. How about you looking back over your childhood and you're growing? Have you made mistakes? Yes. But you know what? That's why Jesus came to die for sinners. But on top of that, he's not upset by that. He knows that we're dust. The same disciples that he said, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Went right back to sleep. Did you ever notice that? They went right back to sleep. And when he finished praying, he didn't say, forget you all. He said, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. We have had this mentality that we've got to be perfect and we've got to do it just right. That's that legalism that has crept into the church. No, I'm not saying you should... Hey, it don't matter. I can do whatever. No, no, no. You'll see in Paul's letter as we go further on in Galatians, he'll take care of that too. But what I want you to do is take a deep breath and relax. God sees you as a process. Let him keep doing his work in you. Let him keep doing his work in you. We got our first page of 12 pages of notes done. How about that? Go to Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read to you verses 21 through 31. Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31. Now, I will tell you this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this section because it's kind of a repeating of a lot of things that Paul has already said. But I'm going to just kind of break it down for you here. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, 
while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, here Paul goes back to his doctrinal argument. Remember, he's been using pharisaical argument methods, and he did that. But then last time we were together, we saw how he broke from that, and he did an appeal to them. And now he's back here in these verses to his doctrinal argument. He uses Abraham's two sons as an illustration of righteousness through the law, or man's effort, versus righteousness through God's promised gift, or through grace. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so too will those who think righteousness is earned persecute those who receive God's righteousness by faith. Faith. But I'm going to read this to you again, and I'm going to add something to it, and I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to add. It's very important. Just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so too will those who think righteousness is earned persecute those who receive God's righteousness by faith, those who receive and act on God's promise. So I'm going to ask you a question. Why did I add the words and act? To be a person of grace, to be a person who's been born again through Jesus Christ and living by faith, you need to not just have faith, you need to act on that faith to demonstrate your faith. Why? Faith because faith without any demonstration of it is dead. It is it's not real faith. I'm sorry? It's definitely a part of it in the sense of learning how to let Jesus work through you. Definitely, it sure is. But a lot of people say, well, I got faith. Well, so did Jesus. Well, they, they believed. They believed they know Jesus is God. Yep. They don't take him as their Savior. Exactly. And listen closely. This is actually one of the biggest ways that we can tell who really are the people of faith versus the many, and I'm sorry to say this, many in our churches today who are not truly born again. They prof prof profess to have it. They don't possess it because it is not manifested by action. Now, this is where the balance comes. That's why for years, as the people who were used of God to determine what was the canon of Scripture, they almost didn't let the book of James be in the Bible. Because they thought that James was disagreeing with what Paul said. Because, you know, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace and through faith, not of works. Yet James says, you say you got faith, you show me by your works. And they thought that James was teaching a different type of gospel. Actually, they're both saying the same thing. If you truly have faith, it will be demonstrated by your actions. Now, I want to illustrate this to you in a kind of a fun way. All right. So stick with me here and we'll see how long till somebody gets the right answer. But we're going to have fun with this. All right. Abraham was credited. He, he was given righteousness because of his faith. Right. But what did Abraham do then to demonstrate his faith? God had told him that he would be the father of many nations. Right. Yes. And Abraham believed God and God gave him righteousness. Well, how was Abraham's faith demonstrated then? Uh, offering Isaac was definitely, but that was later. He actually demonstrated his faith prior to that. By moving when God said move? That's part of it, but that's not tied to the promise. I can say, we're going to have some fun. Let's go back and look at the story. We'll see how long till somebody gets it. Go to Genesis chapter 18. Getting rid of Hagar and Ishmael? No, well, I'm sure that's a part of it, but that's not the answer either. <laughs> well, the lack of faith of sleep, uh, sleeping with Hagar was definitely one. But Genesis 18, let's look at the story. Genesis 18, look at verses 10 through 14. The Lord said, I will surely return to you. That's Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. 
I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. All right? Remember, God comes and he makes the promise that Sarah's going to give birth. Now, at this point, they're both very old. All right? Now, let's go over to Genesis chapter 21. Look at verses 1 through 7. Here it tells about his birth. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, and as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God made, has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Has anybody caught it yet? They had relations. Yes, good for you. <laughs> he had to act on what God had said. And he had to have relations with his wife believing that it was going to produce a child. Isaac wasn't like Jesus where God just put the baby in the mother's womb. She did say, I'm going to have pleasure. I'm going to have pleasure. He, she bore Abraham a son. It actually gets even more clear. Go to Romans chapter 4. That's kind of weird because I always kind of understood that, that he, he couldn't do it no more. Right. But then after Sarah had Isaac, then he had other children. He had other children. So yes. All the time he could do it. He just didn't. Well, God controls whether or not he can or can't. God the one that controls it. Romans chapter 4, look at verses 18 and 19, and you'll see it kind of written here in this passage. Talking about Abraham, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. What is this saying in a roundabout way? Tell me what's working. He, he didn't look at his physical condition as a being a barrier to what was God had said. Therefore, he, oh, let's put it this way. God said, you're going to have a child this time next year. He went and put the do not disturb sign on the tent. <laughs> Or oh, the green light. <laughs> the green light. <laughs> yep. I actually heard a story one time, and this is a true story about a husband and wife who went to counseling because the wife always wore socks to bed because her feet were always cold. And the husband just didn't think that was romantic at all, and he got really upset, and he kept saying, look, I mean, every time I want to be intimate, she was wearing these socks, and it's really causing a problem. And the counselor said to him, dude, you just need to buy her a special pair of socks and consider them your lucky socks. And you want to put those socks on her pillow. And he goes, and when you look at it a different way, it totally changed the whole thing. And so in the same way, Abraham had to act on what God had said. Abraham couldn't say, well, I got faith that God's going to do it and not do it. Right? Folks, I'm, I'm saying this for a reason. I'm not trying to be cute. See, a lot of people, a lot of us say we have faith, but I, I want to just ask you, do you? See, because if I were to ask you, does God's word say that he will bless you if you're generous? Yes. How come we're not generous? Because we really don't believe it. If we had faith, we'll act. Years ago, I was speaking at this youth event in uh, Slidell, Louisiana, and the youth pastor that had asked me to come and speak to this youth event that he had set up there at his church, he had cerebral palsy, and he couldn't walk around very well because of his physical condition. Well, that day, I was doing a lesson on real faith is demonstrated by our actions. Well, what I had done was I had taken a bunch of firecrackers ahead of time, big ones, and I had taken the fuses out and I had taken the time to carefully get all the gunpowder out of each of them. And then I put the fuses back in all of them. 
And I came into the room that day in the middle of my lesson. I was teaching all these young people about if we have faith, it'll be demonstrated by our actions. And I held up this handful of big firecrackers and I said, y'all know what these are? They go, we know what those are. And I took a lighter and I lit them all and I threw them under everybody's chairs. One of them went directly underneath the youth pastor's chair and the guy's got cerebral palsy and this is what he was doing. He goes, this is wrong, this is wrong because he's trying to get up and he can't move. The room emptied. The kids just went, ah, and they took off and split. Well, of course, nothing goes on because there was no fire, you know, gunpowder and those fireworks. So I had to then go out in the hallways and bring them back in and sit them down. I said, why did you all run? They said, well, you lit firecrack. I said, you believed that they actually had gunpowder in them and that's why you ran. Your actions showed what you really believe. Folks, we in the church are real good at making statements of faith. I believe this, I believe that. Do we? Do we really believe it? Because if we really believe it, true faith will be demonstrated by our actions. And I just want to leave that at that and let God speak specifically to where it is that he's talking to you. But I'll, I wrote this in my notes. Do you believe that you're righteous already because of Jesus? Then show it by stopping your attempts to gain favor with God and just simply obey him in love and worship. Stop thinking, oh, I didn't do this. Now God's upset with me. Oh, I should have done that. Now God's upset with me. Or I did this. He must be blessing me now because I read my Bible all week. That's got to count for something. He must have been reading Tozer. Yeah, I love it. Tozer understands what we're talking about. And so you see what I'm saying? It's easy to make a statement of faith. Your actions will show whether or not you really believe. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Paul now is heading into a transitional section of this letter. And there's a couple of things I want to kind of clarify before we get into it. We're only going to go as far as verse 6 tonight, and we actually might even get that far. You guys have been listening faster all of a sudden. But there's a couple of things I want to do, though, to kind of, kind of set up for you where we're about to go. Because I don't want you to miss the transition. If you, don't, if you don't catch the transition, you're going to miss some real viable stuff here. So uh, if you're taking notes, put it down this way. In, uh, um, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5... Paul will continue his warnings of the threat of legalism to Christian freedom. In verses 1 through 12, he's going to continue his warnings of the threat of legalism to Christian freedom. In other words, I'll paraphrase what he's going to be covering up for us here. He's, he's going to say, don't let legalism rob you of your privileges in freedom. But then in verses 13 through 26, of course, we're not getting this far tonight. But in verses 13 through 26, Paul is then going to take some time to warn of the danger of seeing Christian freedom as a license to sin. In other words, don't use your freedom to lapse into loose and careless living. And so in this transition in this letter, he's going to continue just a little bit longer to deal with the dangers of legalism, but then he's going to make a transition into speaking to the Christians then to help them really understand what freedom is. And if you're like me, you really don't know what it means to be free in Christ, right? Well, I'm just assuming you don't because I still struggle with it. Freedom, you know, if we were to try to define Christian freedom, we'd be close, but we really wouldn't get it. Or we'd have aspects of the definition, but not all of it. And so we're not going to get to that definition tonight. But in the weeks that we're going to be coming further now, we need to get that nailed down. I want you to have solidified in your minds, in your heart, what Christian freedom really means. Whenever you read freedom and liberty, we need to know what that really means. But we will at least tonight, we will start to begin to define it. And we have to define it by saying, first of all, what it's not. Christian freedom is not an individual's right to do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, with no consequences. I'm going to say that again. When we talk about Christian freedom and how you've been set free in Christ... It does not mean that you've been, you've been set free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with no consequences. Now, I'm going to stop and open that up for discussion. Why? From Scripture, can you tell me that that is biblically not the case? That, that's not the, that, that is not what freedom means. Well, 
That's right. So in other words, there are some things that are, are, are you're free to do, but they may not be for the best for the kingdom and for other people. Very good. Keep going. As Christ said in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. Exactly. He, even though he was as free as anybody, all authority has been given on uh, earth has been given to me. He still submitted himself. What does the Bible call us? We are, it begins with the word S. Slaves. Slaves. Unfortunately, in most of our translations, the word slave has been translated servant. And I think it hurts us a little bit. If you're interested in a do a deep study on that, MacArthur has got a book that deals with that. And most of the time that we see it translated servant, it really means slave. We have been become slaves of Jesus Christ, slaves of righteousness. So freedom can't mean I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you're still been bought with a price. You have a Lord. That means he's the owner of a possession. That word kurios in the Greek means owner of a possession. You're free, but you're not free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with no consequences. Because you still have a father who's shaping you and molding you and disciplining you. So freedom can't mean what some people try to make it mean. Well, what does it mean? That will become clear as we continue in our study of Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to go further than that. We're just going to start right now with what freedom isn't as we go into it. So in Galatians chapter 5, what I want to do is just break down each verse. I'm going to read all verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to break down each verse basically individually and have us look at each one individually. Paul says in chapter 5 of Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We'll see how far we get tonight in the time we have left. We're going to take some time to look at these verses. Paul starts off by saying it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't you think it's very important then for us to really understand what freedom means? Because if it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, I want to know what freedom really, really means. So again, we know this much. It's not a freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with no consequences. But go ahead. Freedom from the Mosaic Law. That's part of it. Yes, you're free from sin and guilt, and you're free from legalism. So as we start to define freedom, put these first two things down. You have been set free from sin. It's no longer your master. And you've been set free from guilt. By the way, um, when I say you've been set free from sin, does that mean you're never going to sin again? No, no, no. How many of you still sin? Uh, actually, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you lied. So I'm going to ask you again, how many of you still sin? Yeah. Now everybody needs to put their hand up because the ones who hadn't sinned until that moment sinned when they lied. And so now they're, all right, there we go. But here's what I'm getting at. You still sin, folks, but when I say freedom from sin, it doesn't mean you're, you're, you're now sinless. Yet, you're free from the penalty of sin. Can anybody tell me why? If you still sin, how can you be free from the penalty of sin? Jesus already took the full penalty. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin. We all understand that our sin was heaped on him, that we might become the righteousness of God. That means his righteousness has been put on us. Thank God. I'm free from the penalty of sin. Oh, please hear me. That means that if you sin after salvation, that God's not going to punish you. Oh, there'll be discipline sometimes as a loving father to stop you from sinning in an area. He may spank you, but it is not. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. Folks, God would never make you pay for what you've done. If he does, Jesus didn't pay the full price. You're free from the penalty of sin and guilt. I've started to realize over the years that when I start to feel guilty, it's not God trying to make me feel guilty. It's Satan trying to make me feel guilty. Now, my father still points out sin. 
He convicts. But when he does it, he does it in a way that points out my sin, yet at the same time encourages me. There's a difference between when a kid's trying to learn his ride his bicycle and he falls, between a parent saying, you're no good, you'll never get this, you're such a loser, versus, that wasn't bad, let's give it another shot. Now, they'll say that wasn't so bad, let's give it another shot. Actually, he's pointing out you didn't do it right, yet it's encouraging. Do you see what I'm saying? Your father will point out your sin, but he'll do it in a way that says, you don't need this. I've got better for you. Is that really going to make you happy? Do you see the difference? He's still going to point out sin, but your father loves you. Do you ever remember how I told you when he said, Simon, Simon, Satan is after to sift you as wheat. When he pointed out what Peter was going to do in denying him, he called him by his new name. He had said, Simon, Simon, Satan is after to sift you as wheat. I prayed for you, Simon. But when Peter said, I'm willing to die for you, I'll go to prison. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, You'll deny you know me three times. Folks, did you catch it? The loving way that the father said, you're going to blow it. And I see the real you. I don't see you as a bad person because you sin. Because you're going to deny me. Because I know what I'm going to finish. And I know how you're going to come out. But he pointed out his sin and he did it in a loving way. When Jesus said to the woman at the well, go call your husband. He did it in a way that as he pointed out her sin, she didn't feel condemned. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Where are your accusers? Well, they're gone. Remember he said, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. Was there anybody there that could throw a stone? Oh, you're wrong. There was somebody there without sin, couldn't, wasn't there? There was somebody there that could have thrown the first stone, and he didn't. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Listen to what he said next. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Did you catch it? He pointed out sin. But he did it in a way that was encouraging, building up. Folks, God's going to point out your sin still. But it won't be to make you feel bad or make you feel worthless or make you feel like a loser. And that means you have to do something to get right again. No, when he points it out. He points it out in a way that builds you up and says, I've got better for you. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was hiding. He wanted to see Jesus. But Zacchaeus didn't climb in the tree just because he was short, folks. I don't know how much you know this about Zacchaeus. He was a Jew who worked for the Romans. And yes, he was short. But he was also hated by all those people in that crowd because they hated the tax collectors, because they knew that they were working for the enemy and there was nothing they could do about it because their role was to collect taxes for the Romans. And if you didn't pay the taxes, they had Roman guards with them and they would say, you gotta pay. And if you don't, they're gonna take you to jail. And they also knew that how Zacchaeus got his money was if Rome said the tax was $5 a person, he could say it's $10 a person and whatever he got, the five went to Rome, the rest was his. And he had Roman guards that could make you pay up or go to jail. And there was nothing you could do. And they hated Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus climbed a tree, not just because he was short, but because he wanted to see Jesus. But he knew if he tried to make his way through that crowd, he might not come out alive. There might have been somebody that stuck a knife in his back. And we don't know how that happened. There was a lot of people who would have been the one, that, you know what I'm saying? He was afraid of the folks. You know what Jesus did? You know what Jesus did when he said to Zacchaeus, I'm eating at your house today? He honored him in front of all those people. Because to have a rabbi eat at your place was a big deal. And in front of all those people, he said, I'm eating at your house today, Zacchaeus. Come on down. Let's go. I'm going to eat at your house today. Now, we don't have recorded the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus. But I can tell you this much, Jesus dealt with his sin because when he comes out of that lunch, he says, I'm going to pay everybody back four times as much as I stole. And he didn't sound like he was feeling like a loser. He was excited. Folks, let me just tell you. Freedom means you're free from sin's penalty and the guilt of sin. And you're free from legalistic bondage. Don't let anyone... They remember the bondage people 
the, the Ishmaels persecuted Isaac, there are going to be people in the church who are going to persecute you because you're not as faithful as they are. Because you're not following the rules. Because you did something that they would never have done. And they think they're more righteous than you because they do things you don't do. Or they do things you should do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't be sub submit again to a yoke of slavery. Folks, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So the first part is we really understand what freedom means. You're free from sin's penalty and from the guilt, and you're free from legalistic bondage. Now, you mean I don't have to be in church every Sunday? No, you don't. You mean I, I don't have to go at all? Well, let me just put it to you this way. The one who lives within you, who said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's valuable to be with other believers. He's going to deal with that. So don't, you can go try. <laughs> if you're really his, you won't like it. It's going to change. You're going, your heart's attitude will change. It's time that we stop having to go to church and realize we get to go to church. But I, shouldn't, I can't preach a sermon to get you to change your attitude about that. That's only something that the Lord is going to deal with you about. You're free. You don't have to go. Oh, but let me just smile at you and say, don't worry. You'll go. If you're really his, you can't stay away long. If you're really his. Exactly. Exactly. Jim, it's interesting that we complain about Yep. It's really the least of what... And, and you, you know what? You're right. You're right. You know, we, we complain about our, friend, our fans, friends or family that don't go to church. No, if they'd only go to church. You know what? I'm going to say to you, uh, part of the reason why they don't go is they've been. I, I'm far more interested in them coming to know Jesus and then him finding them a place where they can get plugged into the group of people that are for real and love the Lord. And there's no such thing as a perfect church. But at the same time, we just think, oh, if they just go to church. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. You know, going to church don't make you a Christian. It's God's work in your heart. And whatever he's got to do, let him do it. Let him do it. All right. Verse 2. Look, I, Paul. He's pulling out his apostolic card right now, guys. His apostle card, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. All right. Now, here in verse two, he's talking to the Christians who are fallen prey to the legalistic stuff being added to their faith in Christ. In verse four, he deals with those who aren't in Christ. Look at verse four. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. In other words, for those of you that think you're righteous and you're trying to get your righteousness from the law, you don't even have salvation is what he's saying. Okay, verse 4, he deals with those who are putting their faith. Remember, there were the Judaizers who had crept in. Their faith was in their righteousness and their obedience to the law. Verse 4, he's talking to them and saying, you don't even have Christ. But in verse 2, he's talking to those who are Christians, but who are being susceptible to the fact that someone says, well, you've got to add this to it. And he says to them, look, if you add, try to add circumcision, you're going to miss out on the grace that we have in Christ. There's a wonderful advantage of being free in Christ. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out on that. So Jim, yes. That's not saying that you, you fall from grace and lose your salvation. It's saying that others do. Exactly. Verse 2, he's warning those who, ha who have salvation. He says, you're going to miss out on the advantages that we have in Christ. Because, hey, how many of you have been there? I mean, I've been a Christian since 1973. All right? Do the math. I've been a Christian since 1973, coming up on 40 years. It was in September of 1973 that I was baptized. All right? For a long time. I understood that I was forgiven, going to heaven because of Jesus, not because of me. Yet I struggled for many years when I would sin with thinking that I had to feel sorry enough and ask God to forgive me. And then he would welcome me back. And I missed out on the benefits of the freedom that I had in Christ. 
Had Christ left me? No. Was I saved? Yes. Did I enjoy the advantages of Christ? No, I missed out on them. I missed out on them. Oh, and I could tell you story upon story upon story of how God during those years would try to reach out to me in love and say, Jim, it's not that way. I remember one time when I was uh, living uh, in Palm Bay, uh, my brother John and I were living together. We were both single. This is before I was married to Becky. And we were living in an apartment complex off of Babcock Street over behind the ABC Liquor. That's where our apartment was. You can tell by the sounds. It was a nice one, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was a beautiful apartment behind the ABC Liquor there. And uh, one time in my life, I had felt like I had gotten away from God and I had fallen into sin and all this stuff. And one night I decided that I was going to lay on the living room floor of that apartment until God forgave me. And it probably is going to take a long time because, you know, God's pretty upset with me and, and I have to prove my love, <coughs> excuse me, prove my repentance, prove how serious I am. And so I literally laid on my face on the floor straight out, face in the carpet, and I wished we had vacuumed. And I, <laughs> I, I, I laid out on that floor and I said, God, I'm not going to move until I know that you've forgiven me. Because I didn't think he had. I didn't think he deserved to. I deserved it. I, I've been pretty bad in my mind. And I thought if I prove my penance, if I prove that I'm sorry, then he'll forgive me. Little did I know I was already forgiven. And I laid there for three hours. And I felt nothing. I didn't feel better. And I got up. And I, I put a tape in. This shows how long ago it was. I put a cassette tape in. <laughs> And it was a song by a man named Greg X. Bowles. I don't even, some of you even remember Greg X. Bowles. And the song was called Take Me Back. And I played Take Me Back because I figured maybe God will really know how much I mean it when I play Take Me Back. And there's a line in that song that he goes, and throughout the song he's crying out to God, crying out to God, oh, take me back, take me back, take me back. And the last line of the song said this, through my tears, my eyes were opened, and I just had to laugh when I realized you never, ever let me go. All through my life, he's been reaching out to me and saying, Jim, you've misunderstood. People have told you things about me that aren't true. I was in Christ, but I wasn't enjoying the advantages of, to you, of that. So in verse 2, he's saying to the Christian, if you think you got to do certain things to be righteous along with your faith in Christ, he's not saying you're not saved, but you're going to miss out on the advantages we have in Christ. The freedom, the grace. Verse 4, he deals with those. Look how he words it in verse 4. You who would be justified by the law. You who think your righteousness is from the law. You think you're saved because you keep the law. You're severed from Christ. Yeah, that's not possible for those of us who are in him. That's not possible for those of us who are in him. I'm going to do it fast because I want to, this won't be a really good place to pick up. So listen quick. Verse 3, he just simply repeats what he had already said in verse, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. In verse 3, he just simply repeats what he had already said earlier. We've already studied it in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, when he talks about you who want to be righteous by the law. Remember what the law says. You have to keep it perfectly. Do you really want to go back to that? Do you really want to have to be perfect in order to be righteous? You, you know and I know we can't. So don't, that's foolishness. In verse 5, he says, this is, let me paraphrase it for you. This is the true way of salvation. He says in verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, salvation comes by the Spirit of God working through our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. Salvation comes by the Spirit of God working through our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say this now real quickly, and we will stop here, and I will pick up right on this point next time we get together next Tuesday. But I want to remind you as we leave tonight, when we say salvation, we mean the point in which we get saved. When the Bible talks of salvation, it means the whole process. And you have to be reminded of that to really understand what the Bible talks about salvation. Remember Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Yet he was talking just about the justification part of salvation. And then we have Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We are to work out our what? 
salvation. Why? Sanctification is a part of salvation. God's in the process of saving us. I thought I was already saved. Yes, you are, but you're being saved. Oh, and by the way, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it talks about how we await the coming of salvation. Wait a minute. How can salvation be coming when I've already got salvation? Because when the Bible talks about salvation, it speaks of the whole process. The moment you've trusted him, the process of him conforming you into his image and the day in which it's reached its fulfillment in glory. Folks, have you been saved? Yes. Are you being saved? Yes. Will you be saved? Yes. That's that sanctification is the middle process. Justification is the moment you get saved. Sanctification is the middle process. Glorification is when it happens in heaven. So when you see the word salvation, stop thinking it's just the moment you trusted him. It's way more than that. We'll get into that in a little more detail when we come back next week. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the way in which uh, tonight I have sensed your spirit in such a way that you've invigorated me as I've been even a little bit weary tonight as we began. But Lord, as your spirit has just been been leading and directing and speaking to our hearts, I thank you right now. I just thank you for the fact that I can come in here, even though I've done the prep and the prayer and the study that you want me to, I can literally rest in the fact that you're going to do the teaching. And Lord, I thank you for that as well. But Lord, tonight, as we go from this place, may this not just be a con collection of information. May this not be some more notes we just put on a page and put on our bookshelf with all the other notes that we've always written down. May what we prayed at the beginning have taken place and continue to take place. May we have heard from you. And may you have spoken specifically to us in a, in a certain area that you wanted us to hear. And Lord, may we thank you for it. Yet, may we also act now on what you have said in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.